Chapter One Christy watched in silence as the young woman approached the side of U.S. Route 22. Matted hair covered her face, and what appeared to be dried blood was caked on her cheek. Hollow eyes punctuated a blank, emotionless stare that alluded to the horrors she had witnessed and the trauma she had sustained. She carried a small bundle in her arms. From a distance, the shape of the bundle and the manner in which she carried it made it appear to be a young child, no older than a year old. In the relative calm and silence of the early morning, the roadway was almost entirely abandoned. However, that would soon change. From her position in the tree line, Christy heard an approaching engine. It was at first almost imperceptible. She had initially thought she was imagining it, just as she had countless times in the past several hours. However, the sound grew. The woman in the road gazed in the direction of the noise, confirming that it was not a figment of Christie's imagination. Christie looked on as the woman turned in the direction of the noise. She lowered her eyes to the surface of the asphalt and began shambling in the direction of the approaching rumble. She walked down the dashed line that ran between the two oncoming lanes. The two lanes in the opposite direction were separated from the oncoming lanes by a median that was overgrown with brush and small trees. A few moments passed before Christy finally acquired a visual of the vehicle she had been waiting for. In fact, it was not a single vehicle, but three. A pair of tractor trailers followed a black pickup truck. One tractor trailer pulled a metallic tank, and the other pulled a 53-foot trailer. The trio of vehicles was traveling in excess of the posted speed limit, taking advantage of the near-complete lack of law enforcement presence in much of both the local county and the state of Pennsylvania. The woman in the road looked up. She did not move from her position in the middle of the lanes, though she began wildly waving her free arm. Help me, cried the woman pitifully. The truck slowed. Her waving became more frantic. The lead vehicle, a pickup truck, began pulling into the left lane. The woman followed in that direction. Chrissy could see two figures in the truck. It slowed to a stop on the shoulder of the road. The woman ran around the front of the pickup truck to the driver's side. The window rolled down, revealing a middle-aged man. Christy couldn't make out his words from the distance from which she observed because of the din of the engines, though his face showed concern for the woman. Christy could see him beckon the woman closer to the truck, gesturing to the row of seats behind his own. The woman, however, did not enter the truck. Instead, in a sudden and unexpected show of agility, she dove into the ditch that lay beyond the shoulder, paying no heed to the safety of the fake child she carried in her arms. The man's face erupted in confusion, before then erupting in blood and gore. A single crack of a gunshot rang out in the early morning air. A trio of additional gunshots dispatched the individual in the passenger seat. A moment later, three SUVs emerged from the emergency turnaround road that lay in the median of the road. They parked themselves sideways across the road, blocking the highway entirely for the parked tractor trailers, who were now left with no path forward and no room to turn their long bodies around. Christy had begun moving as soon as the first shot was fired. With her rifle shouldered, she approached from the roadside forest on the driver's side of the tractor-trailer that was parked behind the other two vehicles. She leveled the rifle at the driver's side window but held her fire. Avoiding damage to the vehicle was ideal. However, she both heard and saw the truck shudder. The driver had shifted in reverse, no doubt as a last-ditch attempt at escape. Before the truck had an opportunity to begin rolling, 
A steady stream of 5.56mm rounds pierced the window and door, quickly incapacitating the driver. She reached through the shattered window and opened the locked door. She stepped on the brake and reached across the dead man's body to shift the transmission into neutral. She then applied the parking brake, just as she had rehearsed in her training only days prior. She took a moment to catch her breath. The driver of the tractor trailer had been pulled from his cab. A shot rang out, and his lifeless body fell to the pavement. Let's load up. The sooner we get off this highway, the better, said Carmen Perez as she walked in Christie's direction. A pair of individuals exited the parked SUVs and jogged in the direction of the two tractor trailers. The pickup truck was left alone, though the two bodies, along with those in the tankers, were dragged to the ditch alongside the road. Does it always work out that well? asked Christy. I'm new to this too, remember? replied Perez with a thin smile. We'll figure out exactly what the cargo is and how full that tank is once we get back to town. The two semi-trailers began driving once more taking care to go wide right of the SUVs, one of which had made room for the two trucks to pass by. Perez and Christy walked in the direction of the SUVs. Kelly, can you ride with the others on the way back to town? Will do, replied the young woman who had since ditched her life-size baby doll and was in the process of fixing her disheveled hair. The two entered the SUV, and Perez turned the key in the ignition. Christy, there's something I need to talk to you about. Christy's heart rate quickened at the statement, unsure of the meaning. You're young, but you've shown promise. You're ambitious, not afraid to try new things. And most importantly, you're impersonal when it matters. I like that. Reminds me of myself, not so long ago, said the woman in her early thirties to the college-aged woman. But, said Christy. But? But there's always a but. That's the way to do it, right? Start off with compliments, then move to the tough stuff, right? Prez let out a laugh, a rare enough occurrence that Christy was unable to recall it having happened before in her presence. No, it's not like that. I need to know I can trust you with something big. What's that? said Christy, relieved. Not a word of this leaves this car. Do you understand? Of course. I was contacted yesterday by someone. I couldn't tell you who, even if I did know. But I know they're high up in the UWF, close to the top, said Perez. And? They have an operation for you to complete. It's a one-person job, quick and dirty. I've seen you kill enough to know you're up to the task. Emily looked in both directions down the hallway and closed the door behind her visitor, ensuring no one had seen him enter her temporary office. How do I know Carter sent you? It doesn't matter how. What happens is that we know. Know what? We know about Charlotte. Senator Emily Tompkins fell back on her well-developed skill of feigning emotions, this time choosing to appear clueless. Charlotte Yates? What about her? We know that she knows. Hang on a second. Who is we? replied Emily in an attempt to dodge the line of questions. Senator, don't play stupid. You know who we are, said the man. Last time I checked, it was us, not we. If we don't tie up this loose, answer my question. Carter and his half-baked plan would have never gotten off the ground if it weren't for myself and Senator Fremont, interrupted Emily, with anger in her voice that masked her internal panic. 
As far as we are concerned, this half-baked plan has been a success. There's only a few obstacles to overcome before we'll have achieved our goal. Are you listening to yourself right now? You're talking to a U.S. senator that is living on a military base. A military base in the middle of Kentucky. We haven't been able to regain control of the capital of the free world. What's the latest count on cities that the army has secured? A few dozen? I sat in on a briefing yesterday, and the general was proud that Fresno had been secured. Fresno? Who cares about Fresno? This has been an unmitigated disaster. The government hasn't changed a bit. There's no liberal wave, no upswell of support for a new government. Since the grid went down, there hasn't been a government, as far as I'm concerned. The agent, a young man that appeared to be in his late 20s, remained still as he received the verbal lashing. Emily continued, Don't talk to me about obstacles. The UWF and other organizations have taken on a life of their own. This isn't socialism. This is anarchy. Are you finished? replied the man. Emily replied with a glare that told of her stress and frustration that had accumulated in the months since her evacuation from Washington, D.C., ahead of a rapid and nearly unprecedented invasion of the city that represented the heart of the U.S. federal government. Charlotte Yates will need to be dealt with, said the man. I can deal with Charlotte. Emily. Senator Tompkins, said Emily, correcting the man. Senator Tompkins. Carter was clear about the confidential nature of the intel prior to and following the operation. You violated those rules. I'm under orders to inform you that Carter's associates will be dealing with this matter. What's that supposed to mean? That is of no concern to you. Charlotte spent most of her adult life working for me. You don't know how much she has given to this cause. I assure you that every attempt will be made to take care of this matter without harming Miss Yates. Emily was doubtful of this assurance. She knew Carter, his organization, and their associates to be ruthless in the methods. They were always motivated by the ends and only considered the means when it was relevant to their image and reputation. Without a word, Emily walked to the door, opened it, and gestured for the man to leave. She had not talked to Charlotte since the D.C. evacuation. There was the brief exchange of text messages following her flight out of the capital, but subsequent messages to Charlotte had been left unreturned. Emily was unsure of her fate, but had been resigned to the fact that Charlotte had been killed, or worse. The visit by the agent, a man that wore fatigues in order to blend in with the other personnel that resided in Fort Campbell, suggested that Carter's organization had information that confirmed Charlotte was indeed still alive. It was a bittersweet thought. Though she had often seen Charlotte as nothing more than a tool for her to utilize in her pursuit of political gains. The frustration of the past month and the absence of her trusted aide had brought about a different perspective. She missed Charlotte. Emily missed her for her political savvy, her advice, and what at times had felt like an actual friendship, though their professional work had always and inevitably prevented such a relationship from thriving. However, the agent was not incorrect in his assessment of the risk posed by Charlotte knowing this information. Disclosing the plan to Charlotte had been an easy decision over twelve months prior. Emily had trusted her with nearly every bit of information in the past, with only a few exceptions. Usually, those related to national security and military operations that were to be carried out in short order, and thus would have soon become public knowledge. 
Charlotte had otherwise proven herself to be a trustworthy aide, and Emily had long since decided that she needed to be privy to even the most classified material should she be able to offer sound advice. The decision to share such information appeared to have come back to haunt Emily. Charlotte's life was in grave danger. Even on a continent in which the power grid was nearly non-existent and communication networks were scant at best, the confidence displayed by Carter's agent told Emily that somehow, some way, they had been able to locate Charlotte. Emily knew that it was likely a long shot that Charlotte still possessed her personal phone, that it was charged, and that she would happen to be in one of the relatively few locations in which the network was still operating. The lack of contact from her most trusted aide for over one month made such a possibility appear unlikely. However, until the visit from Carter's agent, Emily reminded herself that she had decided Charlotte's survival of the events in D.C. was unlikely. If such an assumption could be found to be untrue, then perhaps she needed to reconsider the futility of trying to contact Charlotte. With resolve, Emily decided that she needed to try to contact Charlotte. Even if it was a long shot, she needed to try to warn her that they were coming for her. Charlotte neared a T-shaped junction in the dark hallway. She could hear footsteps down the hallway in both directions, though they soon ceased. She peered first to the left, then to the right. She could see only a matter of a few yards in each direction. Only a small amount of light from the large light some distance away was allowed in through the windows. She took a moment to catch her breath from the brief sprint she had just undertaken. She then held her breath for a matter of seconds as she listened for a clue, a noise that would point her in the right direction. Then she heard it. A slight noise down the hallway to her right. She tiptoed down the hallway, staying close to the wall. She was only feet from the closet now, the closet from which she was certain she had heard the noise. She slowly turned the handle, then rapidly opened the door. I found you, shouted Charlotte. Two small figures emerged, giggling at their short-lived success in evading Charlotte. She knelt, sweeping them both into her arms, embracing them with a hug that she never, until recently, had been able to give a child on account of her always busy work life that had prevented such relationships with her nephews and nieces. All right, the rest of you can come out now. It's time to get you back to your parents before bed. Aw, can't we do one more round? said one of the young girls. I wish we could, but I told your parents I'd have you back by eight. It's eight twelve, said Charlotte as she glanced at the clock on her phone. Two additional figures scampered down the hallway from the other direction as they heeded her instructions. The five of them, led by Charlotte, turned down an additional hallway before exiting the school building through a side door. They walked through the crisp, cool air in the direction of the nearby high school. Their feet crunched through the snow that had developed a layer of thin ice on its top from the snow that had melted during the heat of the day. As they walked through a parking lot, a figure emerged from behind a nearby tree. Boo! Charlotte jumped at the noise, drawing some laughter from the children. You scared Charlotte! said one of the young boys, unfazed by the surprise. Veer, you can't keep doing that to me, said Charlotte. Oh, come on. I can't help myself. It's too easy, said Verat Arya as he embraced Charlotte in his arms and delivered a kiss to her lips. Wow, someone's feeling romantic. In front of the children, too, said Charlotte with a grin. Her response was met by another kiss before he put his arm around her shoulder 
and began walking with the group toward the high school. What happened at eight o'clock? asked Veer. Did one of the parents send you over here? Yep, and I'm sure you can guess which one. Lauren? Bingo! Charlotte rolled her eyes. I get it. Being away from home, out in the middle of Pennsylvania, I'd be worried about my kid, too. Speaking of kids, joked Veer. Charlotte delivered a soft elbow to his side, which was further softened by the heavy jacket he wore. Not happening anytime soon, Veer. It wasn't the right time or environment for such a thought. Of course, that was ignoring the fact that Charlotte was not the type to want children in the first place. Though, she had not shared such feelings with Veer. Still, despite the circumstances and as crazy as she knew it to be, the thought had crossed her mind. Not in a serious type of way, but simply as a remote possibility that could occur in the ill-defined future. Such a thought, even if it was fleeting, was uncharacteristic of the Charlotte of old. That Charlotte, however, had been radically changed. The past month had been a whirlwind for both Veer and Charlotte. The two had found an unexpected, though welcome, romance amidst the chaos the world had been plunged into. Veer, who she had at first regarded as a relatively young and immature man, racked with both anxiety and naivety, had seemingly been replaced by a new man, a man that was brave, loving, and had embraced the uncertainty of the times. It had happened after their near-death encounter so many nights before on the streets of Frederick. Veer had saved their lives while also taking the lives of several others that were pursuing the two. Afterward, a new Veer had emerged. Charlotte had expected him to be wrought with guilt after having taken the lives of the four men in self-defense. Afterward, he was, as one would expect, shaking violently as his adrenaline wore off. However, as he explained it, it was as though he had suddenly been transported into a new world, a world in which everything made sense to him. The change had not come about because of any sick thrill he found in killing the men. He had explained that there was nothing liberating about taking the life of another. Instead, the change inside of him had been about survival. He had seen death, and he knew that in the reality he faced, a reality in which the basics for survival were rare and goodwill was scarce, death would only become more common. Placing his life and future into such a framework allowed him to realize the importance of things he had neglected for so long and neglect the things he had thought were important. He no longer struggled with what he described as the rules of the old world. No longer was he bound by the expectations of his parents, who he still dearly missed. The limitations of a monthly budget, the routine and schedule of a prestigious college, or the various other social expectations that he felt had been placed upon him by the world. Charlotte, too, had realized that she had been given an opportunity. In fact, the night Veer emerged from his shell was the night that they had first kissed, much to the surprise of both Veer and Charlotte. It was the first time Charlotte had been kissed since college, and, much like with Veer, the kiss had helped her realize that she had been given a chance to do life differently than she had for so many years. Did they get any shipments today? asked Charlotte. No. There was supposed to be one from up north, but it never arrived. Captured, probably, just like the last one. I don't know what their plan is, long term. They keep getting more people in. Soon, that building over there will be needed to house more refugees, said Veer, gesturing to the building Charlotte and the children had been playing in. 
but the amount of food, fuel, medicine, you name it. We keep running out of it, and we're not getting enough in through these shipments. What about the EU? Didn't I hear they would be stepping up their aid? Maybe. I heard things are getting worse over there. Shortages, blackouts, things like that. Besides, most of their aid doesn't make it past the I-95 corridor or the big cities. I'm sure something will work out, said Charlotte as she tried to comfort him. Maybe, maybe not, said Veer, with worry in his voice in response to the sobering direction the conversation had headed. Charlotte reminded herself that, though Veer had appeared to change drastically in the past month, it was not surprising to see this anxiety, at times, rise up once more within his mind. They walked into the high school and began leading the children to the rooms in which each of their families had been temporarily housed. Charlotte knew Veer's perspective on the situation was as much pessimism as it was realism. She felt fortunate they had found their way to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Unlike many of the larger cities, it was not under the control of the UWF, Libertas, or the other groups that ruled in an even harsher manner. She had heard of some towns and cities under the control of cartels, religious extremists, and even a rogue military commander. Those territories had garnered a deplorable reputation, and their fleeing citizens, along with those that fled other cities, had contributed to swelling ranks of the improvised refugee camp within Harrisburg. The city, for the time being, was still governed by the mayor of the city that had been in office over a month prior. He had proven to be a reasonable man that sought what was best for his city. Though Charlotte had not been in the city early on, she had since learned that he had utilized his resources well. The police department had been reinforced with local citizens, and he had many promises and concessions in order to keep them working during the early days. As broader society became more unhinged, the city actively marketed itself as a safe haven for those in need of safety, food, and shelter. This reputation had spared it from significant negative attention from most major factions in the region, and had allowed the city to operate in relative peace for the past month. Though, it too suffered from the same scarcity as the rest of the country, a scarcity that was exacerbated by the swelling ranks of refugees that tended to move into the city at a faster rate than they left. It was a scarcity that was only occasionally and partially relieved by shipments of food, fuel, and other goods from nearby in the region, or abroad. Charlotte and Veer had first decided to come to this city as another step along the way, as they continued to move westward. However, their move west from the densely populated metros had been otherwise without a clear direction. Each community and town they had encountered suffered from either a lack of central authority, allowing crime and violence to thrive, or else a central authority, usually led by local citizens or government, that was unfriendly to the masses that were moving westward. The rumor that Harrisburg was different had turned out to be true. The city had, in an orderly manner, directed the two toward the refugee center on the east side of the town. It was a loose collection of schools, churches, department stores, and other buildings that could house large numbers of people. The large area was also interspersed with houses, most of which were still inhabited by local residents, which necessitated additional security. However, the reputation of being a safe haven of sorts had attracted several individuals, from Harrisburg and local communities, that wanted to help with making such a mission a reality. For some time, the overall positive nature of the mission had succeeded in keeping crime relatively low. Veer and Charlotte, however, were no longer simply refugees. They had soon decided that, 
though this may not be their last stop. They were both in need of food and shelter. There were limitations to the time refugees could spend in Harrisburg, but those limitations were extended to those willing to help. For the past two weeks, they had volunteered in the refugee community with basic tasks, such as food distribution or taking daily censuses. The local government was unwilling to trust the relative newcomers with any duties that could put the safety of others at risk. Tasks such as the assignment of quarters, security, and determination of disbursement of aid were left to the local authorities. Though Charlotte enjoyed helping the growing community, she had her doubts about the longevity of the mission. Shortages had existed upon their arrival to the city, and only worsened in the weeks since. Though most were peaceful, an increasing number of those fleeing their homes were resorting to violence and theft. Some of the locals that lived in Harrisburg had been heard voicing their own doubts, often expressing that it was not sustainable, nor in the best interest of the city, for the refugee center to exist. Charlotte could not blame them for their pessimism. The overall condition of the country had worsened in the weeks following the grid failure, a failure that coincided with the U.S. government retreating to select locations and the spread of anarchy in various factions. Harrisburg had been a veritable miracle, an oasis in the desert, the exception to the rule. But how much longer could it continue? Chapter 2 It had been a long climb and it took every bit of strength for Andrea Evans to pull herself and her pack over the ledge and onto the roof of the two-story apartment. She took a moment, crouching near the ledge, to ensure the roof was clear of any hostels. Next, she looked over the edge to the sidewalk below. As expected, three out of the four sides of the building were manned with guards patrolling outside. The fourth side had been left unattended between the hours of four and seven a.m just as the reconnaissance had informed Andrea and her team. The lone door on that side of the building, an emergency exit, had been welded shut and blocked with a large dumpster. The dumpster's presence on the drone reconnaissance images was what had sparked the idea in Andrea's mind in the first place. The former gymnast's mind had immediately decided it would be the most viable option for her to infiltrate the building. It had provided a five-foot head start on reaching the roof, and it also made it possible for her to reach a ledge she otherwise would have had difficulty with if starting from the ground. Andrea had practiced the maneuver for several days before the operation by locating and scaling buildings with similar wall layouts. These practice climbs had all been done with a harness, but this climb had been done without. Now atop the building, she was prepared to once again risk her life. The building she had just scaled an apartment building that had come under new ownership in recent years, was a known hideout for Los Reyes. The sprawling criminal organization that had been birthed south of the border had long been well-established in Bloomington, Indiana, before the recent crisis. The cartel had started as many others had, by carving out their slice of the drug trade pie. With such operations, violence was a natural side effect, and Los Reyes were notorious for their use of brutal, and often sadistic methods against their rivals. However, it was their more recent foray into human and sex trafficking that especially elicited an anger within Andrea. This practice of locating women, often vulnerable women, and forcing them into sex work through the use of threats, violence, and drug addiction had long ago drawn the ire of Andrea. 
and she had spearheaded a mission within Libertas to confound their efforts even before the more recent collapse of the economy and society as she knew it. However, such efforts were confined to a strict set of rules that prevented Libertas from acting on their information through any use of force, lest they draw the attention of law enforcement. No longer constrained by the law of the land or the responsibility to share information with local authorities, Andrea had relished the opportunity to carry out operations against the organization rather than hope the local police task forces would be up to the task. She and Libertas could take matters into their own hands, on many occasions with success. The Los Reyes was making moves on its own as a power vacuum formed across much of the continent. Andrea's objective was straightforward. She was to remain on the roof of this building in the early stages of the assault in order to prevent access to the roof by any hostiles within the building, thus preventing them from returning fire on the Libertas members on the streets below. Next, if she still expected her position to be unknown to the individuals in the building, she was to then enter through the roof entrance and eliminate any gang members within the building while also securing any of the trafficked women within the walls of the structure. Andrea relished such an opportunity to liberate the women. However, she hoped for an even larger prize inside the building. She had been tracking Martin Novak, the local leader of Los Reyes, for some time. Their intel suggested that the man was operating in central Indiana, following his flight from Indianapolis as the anarchy in the city had become unsuitable, even for a ruthless cartel leader. And the pack that she carried on her back was a suppressed 9mm carbine and a handful of magazines. The lightweight weapon made for an easier climb, though the trade-off was the reduced lethality relative to a similar weapon chambered in a rifle caliber. Romeo in position, said Andrea over her radio. Roger, Team Echo inbound. Whiskey inbound. The two teams, approaching from the east and west, respectively, were each comprised of four Libertas members. Like Andrea, their goal was to enter the objective with as much stealth as possible, ideally without the knowledge of those inside. Andrea peered over the west side of the building. The lone guard below could be seen near the entrance, cigarette in hand, with a rifle slung over his shoulder. From her vantage point, she briefly spotted a single member of the whiskey team on their approach to the building at a distance of nearly 150 yards away from the guard. She smiled to herself, knowing the guard was blissfully unaware of his upcoming demise. Whiskey in position, said a voice in Andrea's earpiece. That was fast, she thought to herself, still impressed with their stealth. Give us another 30 seconds, said another voice. Andrea took a moment to walk around the perimeter of the roof. Guards on the east, south, and west, all in position near the entrances, said Andrea over the radio. Echo in position. Roger, ten seconds on the shot clock. Andrea looked below at the guard on the west side of the building for the length of the silent countdown. At the end of the ten seconds, she heard a light pop, followed by another a half-second later. The guard below crumpled as his cigarette continued to glow in a motionless hand. The whiskey team soon moved in view of Andrea's vantage point. They quickly covered the distance between their location and the west side of the building. Two figures followed the wall of the building to the south, and Andrea followed them around the perimeter of the roof, though still took care to keep the entrance to the roof in sight. The lead figure peered around the corner, 
the guard on the south side of the building, like the others, was oblivious to their presence. The lead figure rounded the corner with his rifle shouldered and delivered a trio of shots to the oblivious guard's body. He dropped in an instant. That's all three boys, said Andrea. Echo moving in. Whiskey moving in. She watched the four figures on the west side of the building disappear as they filtered into the entrance. It was now time for Andrea to wait. She shouldered her rifle and positioned herself to fire upon anyone that would choose to exit onto the roof. For those that had been on the street below, their point of no return had just been reached. For Andrea, that moment had occurred minutes earlier when she had scaled the wall. There was no safe or easy way off of the roof. Because of the layout of the wall, it would have been difficult for her to reach the street below without incurring a significant injury. Silence continued to fill the air. The seconds ticked by. Front lobby secure. Proceeding to the offices, said a voice. Per the established plan, she knew the voice to be that of the whiskey team. The echo team had been tasked with first clearing the first floor hallway and the half dozen or so apartments. Once the two teams had completed this task, they were to then proceed to each of the two stairwells to proceed to the second floor, a floor that consisted nearly entirely of apartments. Echo here, said a voice with some shouting audible in the background. Getting bogged down. Four rooms cleared. Whiskey, we'd appreciate some help. Keep your cool, Andrea reminded herself. Her cue to descend the stairs to the second floor had not yet arrived. With the barrel still pointed at the doorway, she could hear gunfire from two floors below. Still, no sound was heard in the short stairwell that led to the roof. We could use some assistance, Whiskey. No reply was offered as the gunfire continued below. Andrea couldn't wait any longer. She approached the door and put her ear to it. Hearing nothing, she turned the handle. The door creaked as she slowly swung it open, revealing a staircase that ended in yet another door. Andrea toggled the switch on her carbine, turning on a bright light that illuminated the stairwell. She carefully stepped down the stairs, taking care to limit the noise she made. Once again, she put her ear to the door. The faint noise of voices could be heard down the adjacent hallways, as well as the echo of gunfire from within the structure. Romeo's on the second floor, said Andrea, making the communication to reduce the risk of a friendly fire incident. With her rifle shouldered and with a series of magazines on her hip belt, she opened the door a matter of a few inches. To the right, she spotted a lone male figure jogging down the hallway away from Andrea's position and in the direction of a stairwell. He turned the corner, and Andrea opened the door all the way. To the left of the doorway was an empty hallway. Throwing caution to the wind, she turned off her weapon light and sprinted down the hallway in the direction of the man that was running in the direction of the stairwell. The door to the stairwell had just closed as she neared it. She peered through the small glass window on the door. No one could be seen, though a flashlight from somewhere down the staircase provided some illumination for the stairwell. She opened the door and looked to her right. Down the simple stairwell was a trio of men. Two crouched directly behind the third that stood at the bottom of the steps and was peering around the corner into a first-floor hallway. Knowing she had the element of surprise, she allowed herself a brief smile as she brought the stock of her carbine to her cheek. Andrea Evans let fly the first of the thirty rounds in the magazine. The figure nearest to her reacted with surprise as the round entered the back of his chest. He stumbled, falling down the stairs and taking the second man with him. 
The remainder of the 29 rounds were promptly fired into the bodies of the three men, each of which was now at the bottom of the staircase. None were offered a chance to return fire. She crouched in the stairway and replaced the empty magazine with a fresh one from her belt. Knowing she had assisted the two teams on the first floor, she turned her attention to the second floor. She flipped on the weapon light on her carbine and illuminated the hallway ahead. It was empty. She headed to the nearest door on her right. The usual doorknob had been removed, having been replaced by a deadbolt on the outside of the door. Andrea shuddered at the realization that the design change had been implemented as a method in which to deprive the women of any privacy, while also ensuring they did not wander the building unattended. Ironically, the security feature now worked to the advantage of those liberating the women. She entered the room, a room that had been unlit but was now illuminated by the white light of her flashlight. A figure lay motionless on the couch. The apartment told a dark story of these women's bleak existence. Furniture was sparse and garbage was piled in the corners of the room. The stench of urine and excrement assaulted Andrea's nose. She searched the entirety of the living room and kitchen before checking the woman's pulse that lay on the couch. A pulse could be felt, though the woman did not respond to the touch below her jawline. A nearby prescription medication bottle told of the likely cause of her unconsciousness. Andrea walked to the nearby door to the bedroom and opened it. Illuminating the room, no one else could be seen. Though the room once again told of the horrendous conditions these women were forced to live in, Andrea turned the corner to the nearby bathroom. At first glance, the room was empty. Andrea paused a second before leaving the bathroom. She heard a faint noise. Breathing? It was difficult to ascertain the source of the noise with the ongoing sporadic gunfire that still echoed throughout the building. She realized she had not checked the closet in the bedroom. With her rifle shouldered with one hand, she used her offhand to open the closet door while simultaneously backpedaling in order to give herself distance between whatever lay on the other side of the door. Her weapon light illuminated the crouched figure of a woman in the corner of the small closet. She wore a baggy pair of sweatpants and a sweatshirt. Her hair was matted and dirty, and her face was sunken. We're here to help you, said Andrea. A face turned to look at her. A face filled with fear that told her of unheard abuse. I'm here to help, continued Andrea. The woman didn't move from her position, nor did she offer any reply. Okay, I'll be back in a few minutes to help you. Everything is going to be okay. Knowing her mission was time-sensitive, Andrea exited the apartment. Echo, whiskey, what's your status? asked Andrea. Romeo, the first floor is nearly secured. Andrea breathed a sigh of relief at the reply. She had no desire to clear the entire second floor single-handedly. She weighed her options. Knowing most, if not the entirety of the cartel members, had coalesced on the first floor in the early stages of the assault. Across from the room she had just cleared was another apartment. She considered waiting for the Echo and Whiskey teams to reach the second floor, but also knew that behind many of the doors in the hallway were scared women that could still be in danger. She also considered the possibility that Novak was still inside the building somewhere. Echo, Whiskey. Any sign of Martin Novak on the first floor? That's a negative. Deciding it to be worth the risk, Andrea opened the door to the apartment across the hall.